Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, folks. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Payal. And I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my Melting Pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. Hi listeners, welcome to another episode of Melting Pot, a series of conversations with diverse and passionate people from across the globe. My guest today is Smita Tharoor. Smita is the founder of Tharoor Associates, a training, coaching and organizational development company that understands the importance of the unconscious bias. Before we listen to Smita share her story with us, I have to mention that Smita and I have known each other since we were 17. We first met on a train journey in India that kind of propelled me in a different direction. We're not going there today. Our lives since then have evolved. We have had our own personal journeys in different parts of the world, doing and experiencing diverse things. But what binds us together is a deep-rooted friendship for a lifetime. Today, of course, not about me, but it's about Smitha and her story. So welcome to Melting Pot, Smitha. Thank you so much, Paya. I was smiling at the introduction because I was going back to that train journey when we were 17 and and I'm telling myself today, gosh, I didn't know I was able to influence someone talking about paths. You had not planned to, to go to the same university that I had planned to. You were a complete stranger to me. And yet I influenced you to come and join us. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. so you did. And so yeah. you did. And I didn't know I had that kind of power <laughs> of influence. <laughs> I think it was one, the power of influence, and two, the fact that you convinced me that I could graduate in two years rather than in three years. And that was just very, very um, enticing for me. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so here we are today, completely speaking about very, very different things. Our journeys have, you know, your story, my story. We've, we've just, we've gone places, right? But I would like you to start from the very beginning. So you were born in India, and grew up in, partly grew up in Calcutta and then in Mumbai. Am I right? 
That's correct. So I cannot say Mumbai. I'm sorry. I have to say Bombay, the city of my birth. Uh, so I was born in Bombay. I was there from zero to six with my family. And then the first sort of major uh, upheaval, if you like, in my life was that we were moving to Calcutta. And I remember saying to my mother, I was very upset that we were moving to Calcutta. And I said, oh, but I love Bombay and I don't want to move to Calcutta. And, and you know, does it snow in Calcutta? Because snow for me was extremely exotic. You saw only certain photographs. And she said, well, and she hadn't lied, actually. She said, well, it did snow in Calcutta one year. And I think ever since then, it has never snowed again. It was some freak, freak weather storm. But I believed her and I assumed there would be snow in Calcutta, which, of course, for those of us who know India and know Calcutta, would be laughing out loud. But that's what made me very happy. And then we moved to Calcutta and I was there from, from 6 to 18, 19, almost 20, in fact. And those were extremely important, impressionable years of my life because that city was my kind of stamping ground for growing up, my my friends, my connections, my schooling, my values, all of that were very firmly entrenched in me because of those 11, 12 years, those specific age years, 6 to 18, 19, in a city that I now love enormously. So that was Calcutta. And then I, uh, I don't know whether you want the long story or the short story. So I'll tell you a slightly summarized story, if you like. So my, my siblings, my, I'm, I'm the third of three, and my older siblings had both gone to the United States on a full scholarship to study for graduate studies, when my sister went for undergraduate studies, in fact. So I was very keen to do the same, and, um, and I applied. And I got admission, but I did not get any kind of funding. And I knew that I would not, uh, you know, my parents, certainly those days in the 70s and 80s, they could not afford to, to, to pay for my university education. India was very different those days. The economy of India was very different. So even if you were a very senior employee, you did not get the kind of income that could afford uh, university education. So I wanted to run away from Calcutta and do something completely different. And it just so happened that my next door neighbor's son went to boarding school in Rajasthan. And Rajasthan was a foreign, exotic place to me because for those of you who don't know India, Calcutta is in the east of India. It's, it's humid, it's um, lush, it's green. And Rajasthan mostly, mostly is desert is dry, is sand dunes, it's camels. And to me, there was, oh, there's a foreign place I might be able to go to. So without telling my parents, I applied to university, the one I persuaded you to join me at. And, um, and I got in. And then I told my parents that, that, you know what, I don't want to be studying in Calcutta. I want to go and study in Rajasthan. So I ran away in a strange sort of way. I ran away and I went to Calcutta rather than staying on with my parents because I couldn't go to the United States. So it was something exotic and, and foreign. While I was in Rajasthan, my parents back to Bombay. So my summer holidays or my all other holidays were in Bombay. And then from Bombay, they moved to Delhi. And so I was visiting Delhi a lot. And I'm saying this just to kind of put context for those of us who don't know India or listening in. So I was born in Bombay, which is on the west of India. I lived there for six years. I grew up in India, in Calcutta, on the east of India. I went to Rajasthan in the northwest. I lived in Delhi on the north. And then I happen to, even today, have an ancestral home deep in rural Kerala in the south. Now, every summer holiday, for my entire growing up years, until I left India uh, to move to London, which is where I am now, we went home, in inverted commas, to my grandmother's ancestral home in rural Kerala. 
And in the early days, we had the wonderful, romantic, exotic life of getting water from a well, having a bath in the local river, watching, you know, the, the people taking clothes to get beaten against a rock and washing their clothes. No bathtubs, no running water. My eldest uncle would, would go to the two cows that we had to get milk for our breakfast every day. And it was a completely different life to my life in Bombay or Calcutta or Delhi. Why am I sharing this, this whole story? Two things. One is that often when people think about India and Indians, people who don't know India, they think of one part of India. And most of us from India, growing up in India like I did, would have an identity to one part. They'd say, oh, I'm from Bombay, or they'd say, oh, I'm from Delhi, or from Rajasthan, or wherever else. Whereas I, on, on hindsight, at the benefit of hindsight, acknowledge that I, I mean, of course, there are many, many parts of India I've never been to, but equally, I g- truly, genuinely know, experience, live, and speak the language in four very, very different places of India. And to me, that has been a huge influence in my outlook towards life. Kind of, I just went down a different path by it. Was that your question? No, no, that's fine. Yeah, well, you you have, in a sense, you've let the listeners who are not familiar with India understand a little bit of India. So when we talk about diversity, we talk about what comes to mind is, okay, I lived in the UK or I lived in the US or I lived in Africa or that kind of cultural diversity. But for people who you've given a perspective in the sense that India, within India itself, it may be one country, but the fact that you lived in the north in, and you belong to the south, diverse in terms of the, the thought process of the people, the culture, the language, the food, the way people look, it's also completely different. So you got exposed, you may not have gone to the United States at that time, but you were able to experience different parts of India. That's so interesting as well, because you can't say that you belong to Bombay or you belong to Calcutta. You may be passionately in love with Calcutta, as you said, but you, you've had like an overall experience of India and which I think is, is interesting. So no, you did not go off a tangent. At least you've, you've given a perspective to people about how... Two, two things I wanted to say and respond to what you've just said. One is about the food and the language and so on. And, and I suppose the best way when I speak to to friends here in London who've never been to India and they say, we're going to go for the first time and, you know, where should we go and what should we do? Uh, And I say, look, it's like Europe. You know, why would you expect a Swede to to know what Greece is like? Uh, Or, you know, why would you expect if you've never been to Greece? So so that's the point, you see, because we all, you know, we all look give or take same, different shades of brown, but our language, our our food, our culture, our so many aspects of how we see things is so very different. And that's also because of the history and the influences of what's happening or happened in India. So somebody in the north in Punjab would have had a different worldview in 1947 to somebody in Kerala in, in 1947 because of the life experiences. I won't expand on that, but that was one aspect of what you, I just wanted to respond to. And the second thing is what you said about belong, the word belong. And it's really interesting because... It's funny because my Irish husband actually flagged that up to me only as recently as a year ago. So many of us who are born in X country and now live somewhere else and, and we're driving somewhere. I mean, during COVID, we're not going anywhere. But, 
if you were going to a foreign place and you're in a taxi and the cabbie asked you, where are you from? You know, the where are you from question. So I am born and brought up in India and then I moved to London. And I'm now, let's say, whichever exotic country you want to think of in your mind's eye. And the taxi driver says, where are you from? My first instinctive answer is I live in London. I'm from India. And that's there. So there's the belong. Okay, I belong to both these places. But then, and this is the curious thing that my husband pointed out to me, then they say, oh, but if they happen to know India or something, which part of India are you from? So they push that question. And instinctively, unconsciously, I always say, Kerala. And I have never lived in Kerala. Now, isn't that curious? What is that about identity and belonging? What does that mean? I often think about the whole idea of identity and belonging. What does that mean to us? Why do I feel that my identity is Kerala when I've actually the most in any length of time that I've lived in Kerala is one month or maybe two months. I don't know however long the summer holidays were. Isn't that curious and interesting? Yeah. Could be because you've had some incredible memories in terms of because both your parents are from Kerala and you've had all these happy memories. of So growing up, you may not have lived in Kerala, but for every holiday, you did go there. And even if you spent a month or whatever length of time, but it was a constant in your life that you were actually making a trip and going to Kerala to be in your grandmother's home and somewhere maybe that stayed in your mind. I'm, I don't know. I'm just sort of speculating. Mm-hmm. No, you, were, you, know, you were talking about diversity. And, and as you know, I, I work a lot with unconscious bias, which you mentioned in your introduction. And I think these are the reasons that I'm often questioning and thinking about this whole idea of identity and how are we influenced and so on. I mean, certainly another aspect of identity and and how we're influenced is, is about being a feminist. You know, what does a feminist mean? And why do we, why do I personally, you know, want the world to be more of an equal place in terms of gender? And I think that too has something to do with my going back to Kerala every summer. Because for, for many listeners that you may not know, the part of Kerala that I come well, a lot of Kerala used to be many years ago, matriarchal society, and today is a matrilineal society. In other words, inheritance is from mother to daughter. So when I talked about my grandmother's rural home, which we still have, by the way, and I still visit when I had the opportunity, it is the my mother's mother. It is her home, not my father's home. And it is the home where my grandmother, she sadly passed away now, is her home that where she was born in and where she died in. And so us children and grandchildren and now great-grandchildren to my grandmother, or great-great-grandchildren probably, would have an enormous sense of ownership around the idea of mother and inheritance. So why am I bringing that up? Because I'm talking about unconscious bias, right? So these are things that are subliminally embedded in you. You don't question it. You just go home every summer and have fun in the village and get water from the wells or do whatever we're doing. But equally, subliminally, we are embedding ideas of how to live and what we're about and patriarchy and matriarchy and matrilineal inheritance and so on. You know, in England, even today in stately homes, the inheritance is from father to son. And and I know someone personally who um, was the eldest daughter, the eldest child, sorry, uh, of the two younger brothers, and she didn't get a penny from that home when, when her father passed away. She was literally, you know, didn't have anything. So you, you question this whole idea of 
fairness and unfairness. And what does this whole idea of matrilineal and inheritance mean, I suppose? Yeah, but coming back to what you were saying earlier, that you know, you mentioned you get into a cab and straight away people ask you, where are you from? And then you've said, always responded in a certain way. But for me to add here that I have not only lived, I mean, I, was, I wasn't even born in India, and I have lived in Calcutta, I've lived in Mumbai, I've lived in Delhi, but very short periods of time in India, but I've also lived in, in London, I've lived in Libya, I've lived in Singapore, in Spain, so I've kind of lived in, and just moved around, I went to boarding school, you know, so I when someone asks me where I am from, I would always say exactly like what you do, that I am Indian origin, but I live in Singapore. Or when I was living in Spain, I would say I live in Spain. But when the next question of where do I, which part of India, that for me becomes a very, very difficult question to, to respond to. Because like you, you identify and very spontaneously say Kerala and you give the reasons why you probably think that's what it is. But for me, I am not able to pinpoint and say which part of India I am from or, or where do I feel like I belong in India. So it's interesting how, mm. you know, the two sides to the coin in yes. so to speak, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, anyway, I just find these things endlessly fascinating. So there was I. Okay, so we, I'm done with my, my childhood stories and university. And then uh, my parents uh, were now living in Delhi. And then I moved to London. And now what's interesting is my undergrad degree was in English literature. And, and I speak English like I do now. It's not because I live in London that I speak English. Because like you. Uh, and Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of the friends that we know, English obviously was the language of education amongst what we call urban middle class, socioeconomically middle class upbringing in India then and today. And so we all spoke English and obviously we couldn't speak any other language but English to each other, especially if you were from, from Greece and I was from Sweden. How are we going to talk to each other other than in English? That was our binding language. So for me, language was not an issue. I'd studied a lot about the literature of the country. I'd read a lot and I arrived in this country and, uh, and in the city, should I say. And I didn't expect to have any culture shock at all. 
because I knew in my mind's eye so much about it. But what I found I did have a culture shock about was about accent. Now, you have to put into context why I, I had this culture shock. So I grew up in India in the 70s and 80s. And those days, we had hardly any television. In fact, in Calcutta, we had television came to Calcutta in 1977, I think. So we didn't have any TV. And, and if we did, whatever little TV, it was mostly Indian programs, Bengali, Hindi, and so on. And the news would be read in English, which, of course, was India. So um, my understanding of the English accent would have been from BBC World Service, uh, which was what's called received pronunciation. And I so vividly remember coming here and switching on the television and watching something on TV. And there was this, a very light-skinned, dark-haired, so kind of black hair, fairly, could be white, could be brown, but fairly light-skinned. And he was talking about something or the other on, on television. And I remember watching that and getting very excited because I thought this man was from Calcutta. Well, guess what? He was Wales. He was from Wales. He was Welsh. And I discovered that my accent as well, which is influenced by growing up in Calcutta, can often be mistaken for a Welsh English accent, whatever that sounds like. And it was like, you know, this is like in the, in the 80s. I'm sitting, I saw vividly, oh, he's one of mine. He's a Calcuttan. I said to myself, and he wasn't at all. He was a Welsh man who probably never been to Calcutta. And so to me, that was... Such a culture shock that there were these accents. Shows how naive I was. And I, and I remember hearing someone from Glasgow. I was working in, in London. And this gentleman was a, one of the managers. And, and I promise you, I couldn't understand one word he was saying to me. And I'm looking at him thinking, I know he's speaking English, but I can't understand a word because his Glaswegian accent was very, very foreign to me. Of course, now I can because I've lived here long enough. But isn't that interesting? You think that you are a confident speaker in X language, whatever language it might be. And English, I think, is a, is a good example because so many people around the world speak it. But it all depends on the accent, right? So, you know, you have a strong Bengali accent and you speak English. Or you have a strong Glaswegian accent or a strong Welsh accent. And we're all speaking English. How do we understand each other? Yeah. So it was, for me, genuinely quite amusing and a culture shock, for want of a better word. You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Pyle, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. But did you not, because a lot of people, when they start living in another country, like especially the US, I would say more than the UK. If you're born and brought up, it's different to when you've like, you move to London when you were probably 19, 20, 21, something like that. Did you not get influence listening to, you know, a typical accent of a Londoner? Were you not impressionable? And did you not sort of take in the accent and start speaking like that? Because it does happen to a lot of people. It does. Um, but it didn't happen with you. So, uh, no, and was... I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's interesting. Because growing up in Calcutta, all three of us, my, my siblings, my brother, sister and I, we all loved public speaking. I'm talking about when we were in school. So in my school, particularly in Calcutta, run by Irish Catholic nuns, uh, we had elocution lessons. And I remember very clearly, and I enjoyed the elocution. Some of my classmates would absolutely hate it. But I remember sitting in class with, with Sister Dolores, my, my elocution teacher, teaching us how to enunciate. She would say, you've got to enunciate properly. And she would teach us how to pronounce words properly. And I wanted to. 
I wanted to act, I wanted to debate, I wanted to go for like, so Rotary Club, for example, had elocution competitions, and I wanted to do that and attend these elocution competitions. So this was something that I loved doing. So I worked very hard at speaking in inverted commas properly, or what was considered to be proper, enunciated, properly spoken English. So much so that when I applied for my visa to come to London, you have to have an interview at the British Embassy. And I remember being at the British Embassy and the guy who was interviewing me saying, so you've never been to, to the United Kingdom? I said, no. He said, well, you have a very good English accent. So I laughed at him and I said, well, then I won't need to acquire one, will I? And he and I both <laughs> laughed together about that. But I so vividly remember that. I was, what, 20 years old and, and him and he's looking at me astounded that I've never left India and I'm sounding the way I'm sounding today. As you correctly said, my accent has never changed. I, I, you can hear, for those of us from India, you can clearly hear the Indian accent, but it's also about, I don't know, articulating in a certain way. Yeah, as words, I suspect. Yeah, yeah words, yeah. I suspect, are, I've changed. I've lived here so long. They are probably language, you know, language based on which country you're living in will influence you. So the actual words, so words of, I don't know, you know, if you're living in America, you say, I'm mad when you're angry. Uh, whereas I might say, I'm cross. I mean, I don't, but as an example, you know what I mean. Cross, you know, I'm cross with you. I mean, it's, it's a very English, English. phrase. Yeah. Whereas yeah. an American would say, I'm mad at you. I mean, I don't use that as an example. I can't think of one right off the top of my head. But you know what I mean. So language, I'm certain, has influenced me. And I wouldn't say pre-porn, which is a very Indian word, which I think is a brilliant word and should be used all over the world. But it doesn't come to me naturally because I've left India. Yeah, exactly. No, it doesn't come to me at all. And yeah, I get that a lot as well about my accent, you know, because it's very neutral. Some some people think I, I have a British accent. Others think they're confused. They don't know, you know, where that accent comes from. I think it's, it's our diction. You're absolutely right. And the influences that you've had growing up, because obviously, the way you're spoken to, whether it's all spoken with at school or whether it's your parents. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's the influences from childhood, which I guess somewhere get ingrained in, in, in you. So that's where it probably comes from. OK, so now let's move on to unconscious bias. And that is something that you're passionate about. In fact, you've made a career out of motivational speaking and, you know, workshops and all of that centered around unconscious bias. So how did that come about? And it, it's been, what, uh, 10 years or less or more since you actually got into working with unconscious bias? Yeah, it's interesting because my, I've had my company now for, uh, you're right, 10, 11 years now, uh, spot on, but where I've been working with unconscious bias. But what's interesting is that with the benefit of hindsight, I have always been working with unconscious bias, except I didn't use those two words because they've become very fashionable now, as you and I both know, using those two words in the context of understanding inclusion and so on. But I was working within learning and development. I'm talking about before I even started my company, I found that I didn't know it. I didn't use these words, but I was actually working with unconscious bias. So when I was an employee, I was working for the NHS. 
Uh, and I remember I, one of my jobs was to, I was working within learning and development. And one of my jobs was to design workshops around various different subjects like leadership and management, time management, so on. And when I was designing these workshops, I realized that the main point about learning to manage your time better or become a better manager or be learn to be more assertive or negotiation skills or any one of these you know, training things that you can think about has to first start with us and our narrative and our influences and how we are influenced in dealing with X. So, I mean, I remember going into a training room and, and all the participants had arrived for a time management course. And the first thing I said is that there's no such thing as time management. And they said, what are we at the wrong course? I said, no, what we're going to do is talk about what is it that influences you unconsciously, implicitly, without you realizing it, that doesn't allow you to manage your time to the best way that you want to. So the point is, because my life experiences, which I've explained to you, and when I'm in London and then I'm reflecting and I'm thinking back on my genuinely inclusive upbringing, I realize that we all have influences, narratives, things that we carry around in our backpack. And I use that word as an analogy where we don't acknowledge that there are many aspects of our life that might have influenced us in making decisions that we don't even realize is because of something that happened to us five years ago, 25 years ago. I don't know if I'm making sense. So let me just try and expand on that to make sense of what I'm saying. So for example, if you were, so I grew up in Calcutta and this, I'm making it up. It's not a true story, but let's imagine my best friend, actually, no, let me make, let him tell you a true story. So my best friend from school, who is still my very close friend, now lives in Bombay, is a Bengali girl. And so she's from Calcutta, Bengali, and I would go to her home and, and she and I are very close friends. I think you might even have met her by. And so I have known her for now many, many, many years. And I know so much about Bengali customs, about the food, about the language, uh, and about her family and so on. Okay, that's that. Now, I happen to be now living in London. And let's imagine I am interviewing somebody for a job. And it just so happens that, and this bit I'm making up because I, I run my own company, so I don't need to be doing that. But it just so happens that one of the people who is shortlisted to be interviewed happens to have a Bengali name. And I know that by seeing the name. It doesn't matter about the gender. My unconscious bias, without my noticing it, will automatically have a fondness for this person. Now, this person could be completely useless, doesn't know how to do the job, and was lucky to be shortlisted. But because of my close connection with this Bengali friend, I like this other person. And you don't even realize it. It is our life experiences, good, bad, and ugly. I mean, I gave you a good one. It could be a bad one. It could be an ugly one. And all of these experiences will influence us in the decisions we make. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I completely agree with that. And I think it's somewhere there. And, you know, it's not necessarily visible or it's not necessarily something that's staring in your face, but it is there in and it could be an influence from several years ago or it could be like a community influence or yeah no I completely understand and I'm with you on on that one so yeah yeah so that's so coming back to what you were saying no so this whole idea of unconscious bias is a mixture of things 
One is about our identity, which is why I was talking about that earlier. And and I also, and I know when I arrived in London, that um, there were many people in the city who looked like me, in other words, South Asian, brown-skinned, yet many of those people had never been to India in their lives. And their sense of identity and how they see themselves was completely different to how I see myself. So what does that then mean? And what kind of experiences and narratives do they have? And how, does they, how are they influenced? So that was one. The other was what I was talking about in terms of the backpacks. How, how are we brought up? Now, I know with the benefit of hindsight that I was brought up in a genuinely inclusive, accepting, non-judgmental liberal family. Now, we all take our upbringing for granted, right? I mean, so you, you, you just, you don't question it. So for me, as an Indian, I was brought up in a home where gender was equal. I have a brother, and, I, and he was the firstborn child. He was never given preference over the sisters. Religion was never an issue. I have many friends of many religions. Caste was never an issue. For me, caste was in the history books, and it was not about uh, finding people of a different caste lesser than or better than. And sexuality was never an issue. And we're talking about the 70s now, because somebody in our building was gay, and, and at no point did my parents say anything negative about that gentleman who lived in, the, in, in our building. So, I mean, here are examples of so many things that made me, in hindsight only, acknowledge that I was very lucky. I was very privileged in how I was brought up in terms of liberalism. Not everybody has the same experience. And that's not a judgment. That's just my luck. So if you yeah. have not had the same experience, the chances are you've got other stuff in your backpack and you'll jump to conclusions without realizing. Yeah. I mean, my upbringing was pretty similar to yours, as you are aware. So, and even I consider myself lucky in that sense. And also the fact that fortunate, you know, that the kind of values that my brother and me had and that were instilled by our parents is just something that I feel really, really grateful for. And I think it also, it, it is your identity and it, it somewhere makes you who you are today. Of course, there are other influences as well, but I think that's a very integral part of who you are as a person, an individual. I mean, for me, that is very, very important and precious, and I consider it to be a very integral part of my life. So well, that's the thing, you see, in a work-based environment, how can you expect to leave who you are at home? I mean, nowadays, everyone's working from home, but metaphorically, how can you leave who you are at home and then go to work? I mean, how does that work? It doesn't work. Who you are is who you are. And therefore, obviously, it is going to influence every single decision you make at work as well. And it's about acknowledging that. And that is the thing about unconscious bias. It is not just about diversity and race and gender and sexuality and so on. It's much more nuanced than that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think this conversation could have no time limit. <laughs> but unfortunately, that is not possible. So I'll probably have to do a part two with you and to continue this conversation because it's been so interesting. And I'm sure my, my listeners have also absorbed a lot, not only understanding India, but also understanding, you know, a lot about identity. And I'm sure they're going to be inspired after listening to you. So thank you so much, Smitha. I've really enjoyed this conversation conversation with you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Pyle. It's fun <laughs> and it's 
and it's about subjects that, that you and I have already talked about here. They're things that matter to us. So I've hugely enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me to join this conversation. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Smitha. I have known her since teenage years and have seen her be an anchor for so many people in her life. And somehow, it is no surprise to me that she is so genuinely passionate about, gets invited to various conferences on unconscious bias and how it unknowingly impacts our lives. Hope you've enjoyed this chat with Smitha. Until the next episode of Melting Pot, this is Pyle signing off. 